So Melchizedek, he's fun, huh? (laughs) So Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 tonight. Um, So we've gotten small glimpses of Melchizedek here and there. Um, We know in chapter 5 that he told us that he wanted to expound. He wanted to talk to them more about this man, Melchizedek, but that they were dull of hearing and they couldn't receive it. So he gives them further instruction and he now comes back to Melchizedek in hopes that they can receive what he has to say to him, say to them. Our author's main purpose here is to show the eternal and perfect order of Jesus and the temporary and imperfect order of Aaron. Chapter 6 ends with a reminder of the order through which our great high priest would come. At the end of 6, as Kathy shared last week, it says, uh, The Lord has sworn and will not relent your priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, he's going to expound on this verse using the Old Testament uh, account where we first see Melchizedek meeting with Abraham. That's in Genesis 14. So a couple things we need to bear in mind as we move forward is the great value and the respect that these Hebrew Christians had for the Old Testament law um, for Abraham and the Levitical priesthood. Uh, and understandably so, it was um, something that God had instituted, um, and it was familiar to them. But God had already abolished it and taken it out of the way and brought in a better way through his death um, by sending his son to die on the cross. He brought in a better way. But now they're under severe hardship, and they're contemplating returning to Judaism, going back to those old ways. And as I was going through this, I couldn't help but think, as God was allowing this persecution in their life to draw them closer to him, and to pull them into a deeper relationship with him. And while God does that with us through hardship, through difficulty, the enemy was right there trying to rob them of that. And so he's distracting them, saying, go back to Judaism. And this was a distraction for them, and Satan will do that with us as well. He wanted to destroy, Satan wanted to destroy these converted Jews, and he wants to do the same with us. In John 10.10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And the enemy will always want us to respond in the flesh when we go through difficult things. Um, You know, we go through something and we'll say something in the flesh. You know, when we go through hard, hard hardship, the enemy wants us to respond in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord. The familiarity of the Levitical practice of animal sacrifice um, and the earthly priesthood was all about what could be accomplished in the flesh. Um, But as we'll see, God had already brought in a better, more effective way to draw near to him. And that they should continue, the author is encouraging them to continue to wait on the Lord. And he would be faithful, even as we saw last week with Abraham, that as he trusted God despite what he didn't see happening, God was faithful. So his key theme is in these two words we've been hearing over and over, priest forever, that God's priesthood is eternal. So let's look at the priestly order of Melchizedek in three sections. First, we're going to see a better priesthood, verses 1 through 10. Second, we're going to see a better order, verses 11 through 19. And third and last, we're going to see a better covenant, verses 20 through 22. So first, a better priesthood. Verses 1 through 3 is all one sentence. We're going to start there and kind of take it apart a little bit. 
So let's read it together. Verses 1 through 3 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So first we see the superior status and authority of Melchizedek. He's a king and he's a priest. This is important because no one ever held both offices in the Hebrew nation. Trudeau shared with us how King Uzziah, when he tried to offer incense in the temple, he was removed and God struck him with leprosy in Second Chronicles 26. So this dual role of Melchizedek as king and priest, it's prophetic of the office of Jesus because we know that Jesus is both king and priest. This in itself makes Jesus superior to the Levitical priests. We see him as a king in John 18.37 when he's standing before Pilate and Pilate says to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answers and says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In 1 Timothy 1.17, it says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever. And we see him as our great high priest uh, several times in this epistle. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Having then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold tightly to our confession. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Um, Many believe that Salem is Jerusalem, which we know is the predestined city of God. He's a priest of the Most High God. In fact, he's the first priest mentioned in Scripture. Priest of the Most High God tells us that it was God who had sent Melchizedek to have this meeting with Abraham. He's doing the work of God. And in that same way, it would be God who would send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Um... And just like a priest, Jesus would justify all who would believe in his atoning sacrifice for their sins. Once they gave, once the, uh, once you would come to give that animal as a sacrifice to have the priest, um, sacrifice it and your atonement, you were trusting that the priest would take it and do the rest. You were coming in hopes that he was going to do what, what he was supposed to do. And this is the confidence that we have in the cross. When we come to Jesus and we say, God, please forgive me of my sins. I believe in you. We have that same confidence that he is taking it and he is making us clean again. Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Next, we see the superior name of Abraham. In verse 2, it says, Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So he's meeting Abraham. Abraham had just returned from um, defeating an army of five kings who um, who had plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and taken Lot, his nephew, captive. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives honor to Melchizedek being a priest of God, and he tithes to him. The author takes time to expound on the name of Melchizedek. It's both superior to the name of Aaron, and it's prophetic of the name and character of Jesus. The very name Melchizedek is translated king of righteousness. Uh, Melech meaning king, and Sadiq meaning righteousness. Second, he's a king of Salem. The Arabic word Salem is peace. 
So both names point to the superior name of Jesus. And we know that there is no greater name that we can call on than the name of Jesus. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So his name literally means king of righteousness and king of peace. And we always see in scripture that righteousness comes before peace. Um, And both are characteristics of Jesus, as we've mentioned. Psalm 85.10 says, Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And this is in Jesus. Isaiah 9.6 says, Jesus is our prince of peace. The righteousness of Jesus is the only true path that we have to peace. And these Hebrew Christians were looking for peace. They were struggling. They were really going through it. They had hit their bottom. And they were looking for some relief. And our author is encouraging them, Jesus is your king of peace. And he was urging them to cling to the righteousness of Jesus and the messages to us as well. Often the peace of God is found on the same road as suffering and hardship. Some of the most peaceful people that we know walk some very difficult roads. Um, The children of Israel, as they were walking through on dry ground in the Red Sea, it says in Psalm 66, verse 6, that they said, Come, let us rejoice in him. This is while they're in the midst of it, in the midst of what should be a very frightening situation. They were able to stop and have the peace of God, and only, only God can do that. You know, that was not of themselves. If they return, if the Hebrew Christians at this point were to return to Judaism, at what expense would it be? He could no longer make atonement for them there through animal sacrifice. When we search for peace outside of the Lord, our energy is wasted. And we're going to come up empty every time and come up wanting. Isaiah 55, verse 2 through 3 says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul. Oh, I'm sorry, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Last week, there was an article in the New York Times, a new psychology class that they're going to offer this fall, uh, opened up. And within six days, it had just under 1,200 students registered, making it the most popular course in Yale's 316-year history. What is the subject of the class? Happiness. (laughs) Everyone's looking for happiness. Everybody wants some relief. A 19-year-old student enrolled in the class was quoted as saying, In reality, a lot of us are anxious, stressed, unhappy, and just numb. If a 19-year-old adolescent feels like this and describes herself like this, the rest of the world who, you know, they're in it. (laughs) John 16.33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He has overcome it, nothing else. There are, it's not an option. It's not him and something else. He is the only way. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. The word of God is living and totally able to give us the peace that we need in this life, regardless of our circumstances. It is his righteousness that we need, not our own. Our righteousness is all flesh. 
but it's his work in our lives that produces his righteousness in us. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. And Ephesians 2, 14 says that he himself is our peace. The name of Jesus is better than any priest of Levi. He is our king of peace, and he is our king of righteousness. We see the superior lineage of Melchizedek in verse 3. It says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So his lineage is also a prophetic type of Christ. Now, to the Jews, genealogy is very important. To be a priest, you had to prove your genealogy. And if you could not, then you were not able to serve as a priest. In Nehemiah chapter 7, the sons of Kaz are looking for their names among those who are registered, but they couldn't find it. And so it says that they were excluded from the priesthood. So we know two things, that Levitical priests needed to be born through Levitical descent in order to be eligible to be a priest. When one died, his oldest son would take over in his place. This was the full requirement. There was no character test, no ability test, no looking into, you know, what kind of person he was. The full requirement was that his father was also a priest. This is very different because of the characteristics that we mentioned of Jesus. We know that Melchizedek is of an entirely different kind, and there is no mention of his genealogy anywhere in Scripture. His priesthood would be perpetual. It would have no ending. Does this mean that Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy? No, but what we know for sure is that the purpose of the author is to set him forth as an extraordinary person, and the exclusion of his genealogy only further serves to display his priesthood as a type of Christ. In verse 3, it says, But made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. Many commentators disagree on whether or not this is an actual appearing of Jesus. But if we look at the translation of the Greek word made like, it means to cause to model, or to pass off as an image. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. One is a type, and one is the fulfillment of that type. If Melchizedek was Jesus appearing, then there would be no need for Jesus to come as a fulfillment to the order of Melchizedek, because he would already be there. If I have an ice cream cone in this hand, and a picture of an ice cream cone, of this ice cream cone in this hand, one is an image, and one is the real deal, right? If I bring my kids out here and tell them to pick the best one, guess what? We're going to have a small wrestling match right here, because they're going to pick this one. They're going to pick the ice cream cone. They would be weird to pick the picture, right? So it's the same thing. Why would the Hebrew Christians turn from the real deal? You know, they had it already. So Melchizedek is a prophetic type of Jesus, remaining a priest continually. His priesthood never gets transferred, as it did with the sons of Levi. Imagine one priest dying, and now you have to go and tell your sins to somebody completely new. There is no comfort in that. There is no end to the priesthood of Melchizedek. It is eternal. And it points to the eternal priesthood of Jesus. And we can take comfort in that because Jesus is never going to leave us. His priesthood is never going to end. Psalm 102, 27 says, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So next we're called to consider the greatness of Melchizedek in verse 4. It says, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So this word consider means to give critical inspection of. He wants us to really think about this for a minute, that even the patriarch Abraham, he notes the office of Abraham because he knows how greatly they value Abraham. 
In the mind of the Jew, Abraham was it. He was the prime patriarch of the people. He was the father of those who believed that even this man gave a tenth of the spoils. This word spoils means off the top. It was the best of, the best of what he had. This is the first time that we see tithing mentioned in scripture. And it's just an incredible example that Abraham sets. He didn't do it because he was commanded to do it. He was not compelled to do it. He did it in response to who Melchizedek was. Second uh, Corinthians 9, 7 tells us, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Abraham recognized the greatness of Melchizedek, and his response is to give. Often our worship can be dependent on what the Lord is doing in our lives. And when he's not doing what we think he should be doing, our worship fades. But when we see him for who he truly is, and we can only really do this by spending time with him in his word, in prayer. When we see him for who he truly is, no matter what our circumstance, our natural response will be to worship, to give to him the best of us in our tithing, in our time, and in our lives. And we have to remember that the promise to Abraham hadn't been fulfilled yet. He didn't have the son yet. He was still waiting for that. And yet he's not giving in response to what God has done for him yet. He's giving because he knows who Jesus is. He's giving because he recognizes the superiority of Melchizedek. Exodus 35, 4 says, The Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. Our giving or our withholding is a byproduct of what is taking place in my heart, which is far more valuable to the Lord. Even Abraham saw the superior worth of Melchizedek's priesthood. We see this in his uncompelled giving. Verses 5 through 7 says, And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Melchizedek differed from the Levitical priesthood in that he didn't come from them. He wasn't born through them. So he received tithes not by command, but by the spontaneous giving of Abraham. In Numbers 18, we see that the Levitical priests were given instructions to receive tithes from the people, and this would be their provision from the Lord. Melchizedek blesses Abram, who had been given promises by God to be made into a great nation, yet he receives the blessing from Melchizedek, showing us that he is aware that Melchizedek is superior even to himself. And we know this because the blessing always comes from the greater to the lesser in verse 7. We, being lesser of God, are blessed by God. When God does stuff in our life and we know we don't deserve it, we're like, wow, God, thank you, you know, because we know who we are. And we're humbled because of that. And on the flip side, we have the enemy that we have to keep in mind is always there to get us to doubt the work of God in our lives, the goodness of God in our lives. Uh, He lies to us about the goodness of the Lord because we don't see things happening the way that we want them to happen. And so he sneaks in and he says, yeah, you're right. God is not doing what he should be doing. And we have to be careful and we need to bring those thoughts captive. Now, God had 
blessed Abram, and he made a promise to him. But he was starting to get discouraged, and often we know that God is working in our lives. We have that in our head, but we start to become discouraged. And right after this meeting with Melchizedek, in chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord encourages Abraham, and he says, Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. Abraham was getting discouraged by what he wasn't seeing. The Hebrew Christians were becoming discouraged by their situation not changing, their hardship, their persecution. And the same thing happens to us. We become discouraged by what we can't see. So the reminder is to us as well that we need to remind ourselves of the blessings of God in our life. Think back to the things God has done in your life and encourage your heart because God is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23 tells us that he who promised is faithful. Verses 8 through 10, it says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The Levites were mortal men who received the tithes, but Melchizedek, as a type of Christ, was immortal. So because, and because Levi would come through Abraham and Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, the whole Levitical priesthood would be in essence tithing to Melchizedek, thus recognizing its superiority to even their own priesthood. Does that make sense? So the message to the Hebrew Christians, Christians and to us is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is a shadow of our great high priest. It is far superior to the Levitical priesthood. We see this in his authority. We see it in his name. We see it in his lineage, and we see it in his greatness. We would be ignorant to turn away from him. It is not the case that the son is like Melchizedek. I think we can get caught up with the things that we're not seeing about Melchizedek, but the point is that Melchizedek is like the son. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. John 6:68 says, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is nothing else, no one else that has that but Jesus. Second, we're going to see a better order, verses 11 through 19. We're going to see why God wanted such a drastic change in the priesthood and the order that would follow. First, we see that the Old Testament priesthood and the law were imperfect. In verse 11, it says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? The word perfect is a key word in this epistle. It means completed or fulfilled. When we look at the prophetic reference of David in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If God hadn't intended to bring in a better way, being Jesus, why didn't he say according to the order of Aaron? The Old Testament priests and the Levitical practice of animal sacrifice could not complete the plan that God always had in mind. It could not do the work in the heart of a believer that God had ultimately desired. It couldn't bear good fruit in the life of a believer. And in John 15, 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So as a believer, this is what God desires in our life. It could not be accomplished in the law. 
Hebrews 10, 1 through 2 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these things, these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? So when they were to come, if it was the case that it was going to do what God had wanted in the heart of a believer, they would bring the sacrifice and that would be it. But they had to come year after year. It was not, there were no, um, there were no eternal uh, things that were going to benefit them there. So when Moses comes down from the mountain with the law in Exodus 20, he presents it to the children of Israel and they say, yes, all of the things that God has said, we will do it. And he reads them some more and they repeat, yes, all of those things, we can do it. And then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Their intent was good. They wanted to do what the Lord said. But before even Moses comes back down the mountain, we know that they had broken the law, so to speak. They were worshiping a golden calf. So, in fact, Stephen says in Acts 7 and verse 41 that they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. They could not be saved by their own works, but only by the blood of a sacrifice. If they could keep the law perfectly, there would be no need for a sacrifice. God's response to them, behold the blood. And when, Jesus, and when Moses comes back down the mountain, he now has the blueprint for the tabernacle, a picture of God's grace, a shadow of God's ultimate plan of salvation. As I said on Sunday, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And this is what the tabernacle did. A commentator said this, God gave Israel two things on the mountain, the law to condemn, to convict of sin, and to convince man of his own helplessness, and two, the pattern for the tabernacle, to show God's remedy for sin, that they might turn from the law to grace, from Sinai to Calvary, and from their own righteousness to God's righteousness. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law was only to serve as a shadow of a more effective way to come, to prepare the way for a change in the system, a new covenant. Verses 12 through 14 tells us, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So if the priesthood is changed because Aaron was connected to the law of Moses, then we should also expect a change in the law with the coming in of a new priesthood. Under the law of Moses, God had commanded that only those from the family of Aaron could serve at the altar. So when he says, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, he is speaking of another tribe. And we know that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Verse 15 through 17 tells us, and it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever. Jesus didn't come according to a fleshly commandment. Jesus' priesthood was not based on on the law or genealogy like the Levitical priests, but according to the power of an endless life. Not only to keep himself alive, 
but to be able to offer eternal life to all of us, to all those who would believe in his atoning work. Jesus shows us that his priesthood was superior when he triumphed over death. John 3.17 tells us, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verses 18 through 19, we see the replacement of the law. It says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. This word annulled means set aside, taken out of the way, reduced to nothing, something that no longer holds together. This is how the law was now being described. See, the law could not get rid of guilt. It couldn't transform my heart, which at the root of sin, it's my heart that's messed up. It couldn't, it could set the standard, but it could give man no power to meet that standard, to keep that standard. It didn't profit them in any long-term way. And it's essential that we see our sin. We need something that's going to say, hey, you're messed up. But then we need something that is going to cleanse us from that and a way to be set free from it. And only Jesus could do that. These guys in the New Testament had twisted the law so out of proportion. How often did they ridicule Jesus for healing on the Sabbath? They had made the law so much about works that it was a heavy burden. Who could even carry it? That in their mind, even Jesus wasn't keeping it. So we see the problem. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom. And he was looking for a righteousness that was completely outside of the law when he said this. A righteousness that could only be produced by his atonement and work in our lives. The scribes had twisted what God had meant for good. And God took it out of the way. And it's not, by taking the law out of the way, it's not that we should live a lawless life, but we're free to live a life submitted to God. Galatians 3.21 says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. And later down, he says in 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. We would have a better hope. He would be the better thing. And this brings us to verse 19. The law pointed out the better hope, but it wasn't it. The priesthood of Jesus brings with it the fulfillment of that hope. It could never be replaced because no one could annul the power of an endless life. The Hebrew Christians had it in verse six, or I'm sorry, in chapter six, we know that they were, they had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had the eternal promises. Jesus accomplished what the law could never accomplish. He brought in a better hope. And this hope is what enables us to draw near to God. His goal was giving us better access to him. The God of the universe wants to be next to us. This was his goal all along. He made a way for us to come directly to him. And as his children, what joy it brings his heart for us to come over and over and over, regardless of our circumstance. He took the old out of the way and brought in a new way. 
and the only way to draw near to God. It wasn't a negotiation that he made. This was the only way that it was going to be. If any of you live with children, you know that children are great negotiators. Um, not Maybe not great. My daughter, she'll, you know, she asked me, can I go sleep over at Grandma's house? And I'll be like, yeah, maybe Friday. Let's talk to Grandma and see if that works out. And she's like, well, I was thinking like forever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is how she negotiates. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) but we do not get to negotiate the terms with God, right? There is only one way to draw near to God. And it is because of his great love for us that he made a more effective way. But God isn't going to force anyone to put him on the throne of their hearts. It's his rightful place, but we must choose to keep him on the throne. And as long as we're in this world, the enemy is going to throw everything he can at us to get it the king off of the throne of our hearts. He will throw guilt, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. Even our day-to-day tasks can draw our affections away from God if we don't prioritize him. Nothing in this life can compare with the hope that we have in Jesus, our living hope. The old ways are dead. We need to keep those dead things dead. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This brings us to a better covenant, verses 20 through 22. The better covenant was a new agreement God made with mankind based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we accept him, we are promised eternal life. Verse 20 through 22 says, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Jesus was made high priest by the oath of God, foretold by the psalmist in Psalm 110, verse 4. The priesthood of Aaron was never confirmed by an oath from God. They became priests by birth. God swears it, and he will not change his mind. Jesus has become a surety. That's one who puts a bail for a prisoner. Jesus himself is the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus is the co-signer on our behalf. It's like buying a car when you can't do it on your own. Kids have their parents co-sign for them. The new covenant depends on what Jesus has done, not on what we have done. Jesus, as our representative to God, perfectly meets the terms of the agreement on our behalf. We can never meet the terms. By so much more, he is the better guarantor of a better covenant, better than Aaron, better than Abraham, better than animal sacrifice or anything we could ever put in his place. From the go-get, the Lord knew that with the fall of mankind, his children would never be able to thrive on their own. As a parent, we give our children a task. We equip them accordingly. It would be evil not to. If I tell my daughter to go wash my car, but don't give her anything to do it with, that would be wrong. We do it because we love them. And this is his heart for us. He wants to see us do well. He gives us a helper in John 14, verse 15 through 16. It says, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. See, our hardship is not lost on him. He knows 
that it is hard sometimes, and he wants to equip us. And as we spend time in his word and as we spend time in prayer, he does that. He gives us his peace and he gives us the tools that we need to do the things that we need to do to walk with him. He gives us the Holy Spirit and he gives he gives us weapons. In 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. This life that we live more than anything else is a spiritual battle. And he has equipped us. We just need to pick up the weapons and use them. The Hebrew Christians were facing facing hardship, difficulty, no change in their circumstance, like many of us often experience. And to turn away now would be, be turning away from a better way. In fact, to turn away now to animal sacrifice would be sin because God does not share the throne. We cannot serve two masters, he tells us. They wouldn't be able to have a little animal sacrifice on the side and also be right with him. He had brought in a better way, and it was the only way. James says, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. The weapons we have at our disposal are mighty. We need to choose to use them against every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. When the enemy comes in and, and tells us to turn to a different way, that is something that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we need to use what the Lord has given us to bring that down and bring our thoughts captive. In Revelation, Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, I have this against you. You have left your first love. To turn away now would be leaving Jesus, be leaving the love of their life, the one who died on the cross for their sins, who wanted to bring them closer, to draw them in. We'll close with this. About five years ago, off the coast of New Zealand, wildlife officials wanted to establish a gannet colony. Now, gannets are a type of bird. To do this, they set up about 80 concrete birds that resembled this bird. They also put a sound system in place that mimicked the sound of the species' calls. One bird named Nigel accepted the call, but nobody else did. No other birds did. The article said that in the absence of a living love interest, Nigel became enamored with one of the 80 concrete birds. He built her a nest and groomed her year after year after year. Well, this past week, Nigel died next to her. Now, here's the kicker. A couple months ago, wildlife officials tweaked the sound system which brought in several more of these birds, giving Nigel the opportunity to fulfill his purpose and do what he was made to do. It says, but Nigel paid them no attention. I told my daughter this story in the car on the way here, and she said, wait, was he blind? (laughs) See, the Hebrew Christians had the better thing. We have the better thing. The law resembled a type. It was a type and a shadow of the better thing. And it was good while it was what God wanted to use, but temporary and always was inferior to the beautiful, eternal covenant God had in mind for his people. So we could be close to him. And here they are wanting to return to a dead thing, a concrete, useless thing. 
And by doing that, they would be turning away from their true purpose and missing out on the covenant relationship God had intended for them. They needed to keep fighting the good fight, using the weapons in spite of the weight, in spite of the hardship. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. God, help us to not be like Nigel the bird, but give us eyes to see the better thing and hearts to choose it and cling to it and not lose heart. 1 Peter 5.10 says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Let's pray. Lord Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness, that you brought in a better way. You brought in a way for us to be saved. We no longer have to turn or figure it out on our own. You are our peace, Lord. You are our king of righteousness. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts to fight the good fight, to use the weapons that you've given us. Father, help us to choke out anything that is putting you aside, Lord, that is replacing you as king in our hearts. I pray, God, that we would choose you every day, no matter, Father, the circumstance, that we would give you the best of us, that, Father, we would worship you in our giving and in our lives. Lord, that we would be pleasing to you, that we would be women, Father, who love you, who honor you. We just thank you, Father, and I thank you for this time that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.